Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and as you know, I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. Now, we only have 52 episodes a year, so we're very careful about thought leaders, CEOs, best-selling authors, business titans, you know, people who have an interesting point of view that often support our own point of view around executing strategy, building a high-trust culture, achieving greatness. So we're quite deliberate around who we invite to come on to the On Leadership series. Like we say no to 90% of the inquiries that come in to our production team. Our next guest is a little counterintuitive to who we typically interview for Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. His name is Mark Manson. He's a world-renowned blogger, author, thought leader, and he authored one of many books, including one that you know well, called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. Now listen, I'm no pansy, right? But out of respect to the genteel nature and sensitivity of our listeners, I'm not gonna drop the F-bomb, unlike I occasionally do in my house, which I'm not proud of in front of our three sons. But out of respect to you all, I'll let Mark drop those bombs um, if he so chooses. The subtle art of not giving an F, a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. This book has sold over 12 million copies. I mean, that will take your breath away. As you know, I'm in the book business. I read a few books, I've authored a few books, I've published and, and contracted with a lot of books and a lot of publishers. 12 million copies is unprecedented. Mark has clearly tapped into a nerve. Mark Manson, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. You're joining us here from New York City in the midst of the coronavirus. Delighted that you took the time today to join our podcast and interview series. Mark, I'd like to introduce you to our listenership. I'm sure lots of them know who you are, to those who are viewing. But for those final few people that have not read your book or are familiar with uh, the nature of your writing and your blogging, walk us through a bit of your journey professionally and how you came to write this and the other books that you're well known for. Uh, I, I, am, I am a classic, I guess, grassroots internet st success story. Um, I, I graduated in college uh, 2007, just in time for the, uh, the greatest recession in the last 100 years, the worst job market in the last 100 years. Um, and so I found myself uh, unemployed and, and unable to get a job. And so I, I started creating websites just because I had a lot of free time. And, um, and back then in 2008, the, bit, the best thing you could do when you created a website to, to kind of promote it and get traffic and, and uh, make a little bit of money was to start blogs. And turned out that I was pretty good at blogging. And... Uh, and it, it started to catch on, started to build a readership. And by 2013, I was being read by more than a million people each month. And by 2015, I got a book deal um, to write The Subtle Art. And so here I am today. It's a great story. Mark, I want to open with kind of the premise of your book. I'm going to read from your book almost word for word. And <laughs> on page 13, it says, again, I'm no pansy, right? This word has come out of my mouth in the last probably two hours. But out of respect to our CEO and our board and the ladies that are listening, I'm going to skip the word. There's a subtle art of not giving an F. And though the concept may sound ridiculous and I may sound like an a-hole, what I'm talking about here is essentially learning how to focus and prioritize your thoughts effectively, how to pick and choose what matters to you and what does not matter to you based 
on finely honed personal values. This is incredibly difficult. It takes a lifetime of practice and discipline to achieve. I mean, in essence, that's the premise of your book, right? Is deciding what to give an F about and what not to give an F about. A riff on that. Yeah, it, it's, it's a... It's actually, ironically, it's a, the book is a call to personal values. It's a call to uh, get your priorities straight, essentially. And I think, I think it's resonated so much in this day and age because it's, you know, I, I, I'm a millennial. I grew up with the internet. And I, I just, I see among my generation, as well as older generations, you know, with all of the information and the social media and the 24-hour news, um, we're constantly bombarded by information and opportunities that it's become extremely difficult for us to figure out what is actually worth paying attention to and what is not. Um, so I wanted to write a book that that addressed that question and addressed it very aggressively for people. You know, Mark, some I'm sure have accused your book of being maybe cynical, others I'm sure pragmatic. At least 12 million have been raving fans of it, so that drowns out, I'm sure, some of the critics. I know what it's like to be an author and have people you know, critique your work. I brought you on the set today virtually because you have a counterpoint, really, to what Franklin Covey's mission is. I mean, for those who work with us and work for us know that, in fact, our mission is to enable greatness in people and organizations everywhere. We have a, an instinctual... Uh, proclivity to believe that everyone can achieve their own level of greatness. I'm sure that's debatable, and sometimes we even question that because life is tough. You argue somewhat the opposite, which is, no, in fact, most of us, the vast majority, will live a life of mediocrity and sort of averageness, and that maybe not cynically, but pragmatically, it's helpful to just own that and take pleasure in some of the life's small, you know, small pleasures. Yeah. I mean, it's the argument that I make is even if you take people who have achieved great things, they are still mediocre at the mo most things that they do in their lives. You know, so it's like LeBron James might be the best basketball player in the world, but the 99 other things he does every week, he's probably average or even below average. Um, and all of us are that way. So like most of us, even and this is this is why you kind of get this strange experience, and I've had this experience since my book became so successful, is like even if you do that one thing that's hugely successful, you don't feel like a success necessarily because I'm still waking up. I'm still like struggling to get out of bed and like take a shower and be on time to my morning meetings and, you know, eat a healthy breakfast and be a good husband. Like these are all very boring, blase things, but this is actually what life is made of. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, wanting to achieve something great and something very important. But I think, you know, coming back to that question about orienting your values and orienting your priorities, we often lose sight of the daily mundane stuff, which is actually the important stuff, friends, family, our health, uh, because we're so caught up in, you know, these big visions of grand success. And so I, I, there's a whole section of the book where I kind of make this call of, of a return to the ordinary. Uh, because ultimately, if you look at people who, ex who achieve extraordinary things, it's not because they did something extraordinary. It's because they did something ordinary very well, very consistently for a long time. Mark, your focus on uh, va personal values and your own priorities 
I think was my big takeaway for the book. I've mentioned on this program at least once in the last two years that I've worked here for 24 years and was, uh, was tutored by Dr. Covey who passed away about eight years ago. And Franklin Covey is known well for our work on personal mission statements, right? In fact, the most trafficked uh, piece of our entire website is our mission statement builder. People visit it by the tens of thousands a week to craft their own mission statement. I've mentioned that I was single till I was in my 40s. And so the idea of having a personal mission never really resonated with me. It did with hundreds of millions of others. Until our other co-founder, Hiram Smith, who invented the Franklin planning system, which was you know, wildly successful um, in the 80s and 90s, he gave a speech once about knowing your values. And as a single guy in my late 30s, I mean, it just struck me like lightning. Like, I remember the conference hall I was sitting in at Navy Pier in Chicago, where he talked about it. I went home as a single guy that was 38 and wrote my values down over the course of four or five days. That was, you know, 15 years ago. And to this day, I can tell you my seven values. It's an acronym, P-H-I-L-P-A-L, Phil Pal. Purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, positivity, abundance, and learning. And I talk a lot about my own keynote speeches and in my webcast and blogs, how crucially important it is to be grounded in your own values, values that you've thought about and that you believe in and you're connected to. And you can repeat, not just at a dinner party, but the same values next week because they're infused in you. How did you come to a similar realization that really the essence of your book is about connecting to your values and, and really rationing out how much you give an F about and, and, and focusing your, your F quota on the things that are important to you? Sure. I, I, um, you know, I fell into, so I, I started my, my online business in 2008 and I was young, I was 24, um, and also single guy, uh, started making some money online. And I was like, Hey, I can, I can do this anywhere. You know, why, why sit, sit around the U S. So I started traveling around the world. I went to Argentina. I went to Brazil. I went to Europe, went to Asia, um, and I did that for a number of years and it was a blast. It was like one of the best times of my life. And, but the, the thing is, is that after a few years of that, it started to, I noticed that it started to feel very empty. You know, it was like a new country, new party, new people to meet, new culture to explore. Um, you know, it's exciting the first five or 10 times, but you know, when you get to country number 40 or 45, it's it start it stops lose it starts to lose its um its novelty you know and you start to take it for granted and you it starts to just feel like very you start to kind of objectify you're like oh well, this country's like the last three countries i went to so like what's the big deal and i realized that that this was a very self-defeating um pattern that i had fallen into i think i as as many i think people ha do the last 10 to 15 years, I kind of fell into the trappings of all of the freedom and opportunity that technology gave us. It's, I, I, I operated from the assumption that because I can have more, I should try to have more. And so I spent a good seven or eight years of my life just chasing more, more, more all the time. But the problem with more is that there's diminishing returns to it. At some point, it's it stops giving you that same uh, sense of success or s sense of satisfaction. And so 
I kind of had this, like, I guess like a midlife crisis at 30 in which I was like, wait a second. So I just spent all my twenties doing this, trying to achieve and have more. And, uh, and it, and it feels very empty and it feels very pointless. And that's when I started to realize that like, if you don't have some sort of guiding principle dictating your actions and dictating what you're doing in the world, um, like there needs to be something more important than yourself, some sort of concept or, or uh, virtue that you adhere to. Um, otherwise, it's all just frivolous stuff. It's just racking up a high score, essentially, in life. And so I kind of went through this period of, of like, what, what, what the hell is this all for? Like, why am I doing this? Like, what, why is this important? Why is any, is any of this going to matter, uh, you know, years from now? And I kind of, similar to you, I sat down, I'm like, okay, what are the things that are truly important to me, more important than anything else in my life? Things so important that like, I would rather be harmed or even potentially die than give these things up. And I never asked myself that sort of question before. And, um, and going through that process of discovering those, those core values to myself, and it, it, completely changed how I approached life. I moved back to the States. I settled down. I got married. Um, I, I It reoriented my business. I had started changing what uh, the mission of my business and the mission of what I was writing about. Um, it changed how I treated my employees. It was, you know, one of the most transformational things I've ever gone through. Uh, and so that was really you know, when I came home, I saw a lot of people, particularly of my generation, kind of going through that same thing. They were caught up in the, these constant visions of more, more, more. And so I was like, you know, there, there's, there's a book here that needs to be written. And, uh, and a lot of that is what, what initially inspired Subtle Art. Mark, it's a great, great story. Thanks for sharing it. I could find myself in much of that story except for being the author of a book that sold 12 million copies. <laughs> I'm looking forward to replicating that. You know, this is going to be a surprising comparison, but uh, uh, there's a, a religious faith in America called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known by many colloquially as Mormons. It's, their headquarters is here in Salt Lake City. And not a faith that I'm a member of, but a faith that I have a lot of friends in. And, and one of the past leaders of their church was a man named Gordon Hinckley. He passed away several years ago. And Gordon Hinckley was, is their, was their prophet and their president, right? The, kind of their version of the Pope, if you will. And he wrote something quite beautifully that I have tacked up at my home. And I'm going to misquote it, but he basically said, you know, uh, life is not as great every day as you hope it's going to be, right? Your, your, your pork chop's going to be burned and your steak's going to be tough and your kids are going to be annoying and your marriage is going to go through ups and downs. And, you, you know, life's not great every day. And life can be quite average. In fact, most of your life will be quite average. I'm wildly misquoting yep. him. But he basically said, which is why it's so important to look for the beauty and look for the joy and appreciate and cherish the small things that are great in life. I, I don't imagine you've been quoted or compared to many um, uh, religious prophets and presidents, but I think there is some correlation. In essence, you're saying the same thing just with a provocative title. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think any of this stuff is new, right? Like it's, it's and that, that goes for, you know, this whole genre that we all kind of operate in, which is, you know, self self-help, personal development, leadership, all these things. Like it's, these things, people have been saying these things for thousands of years. Sure. And the, the only thing that changes is the packaging 
and the branding. And it's that, and I don't, I don't minimize it by saying that. I, I think it's actually very important to change the packaging and the branding because you need to reach more people. Uh, you know, people need to hear these messages. These are universal human messages that we all need to hear. And and I very much, you know, part of my pitch to to Harper was, um, you know, millennials in general, like they don't have, uh, we, you know, I grew up listening and, and reading a lot of the, the traditional self-help stuff and, and it just felt cheesy and, and unrealistic and, uh, you know, pie in the sky. And and so I I was more cynical and jaded than much of that stuff, but I still found that I needed to work on myself and improve myself. And so I, a lot of my uh, desire in my work comes from simply repackaging a lot of this, this wisdom that's been around forever in ways that people of my generation or people who are more cynical, more jaded, uh, more skeptical, uh, will will be able to to hear it and and appreciate it and and integrate it into their own lives. Mark, speaking of packaging and marketing, if you had named your book The Subtle Art of Not Caring Too Much. And the content <laughs> had been the same inside, but the but the title was The Subtle Art of Not Caring Too Much. Would it have sold 12 million copies? No. How many would it have sold? Not. Uh I don't know, 12? <laughs> to, my, to my point, I, 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 um, this, is, this is not a gotcha question or I'm not exposing it and yeah. that's not obvious, right? I, I, this is my business, I understand this, is why did you choose to name it what you named it? And do you think four years ago when it first was published, it hit a nerve and what nerve was that? Sure. I, I, so the profanity is, it's something I've done on my blog for years and years. Uh, I've been criticized my entire career for the profanity. and and. I actually wrote up a long, there's a, there's an article on my website and it is, it's titled why I have a potty mouth. And, um, and it's, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's actually a very deliberate explanation from a linguistic point of view of like why profanity is important and why profanity exists within language. Um, and I make the argument that profanity is actually very useful, you know, cause it's when you're trying to look like, when you're talking, when you're trying to get people to think about their personal values and their own decisions and and the mistakes that they've made and the struggles that they've gone through, like none of these things are fun to think about. And I see it very much as my mission to kind of uh, find ways to kind of relax people into being willing to think about these things. One way I do it is through humor, but another way I do it is through shock value. Uh, and profanity is actually very good for yeah. kind of like loosening people up to be more receptive to, to certain ideas that maybe they wouldn't be receptive to. Uh, it's why com comedians use it so much, you know? It, and it's, so the profanity is very deliberate. And I think in this day and age where there's so much noise and there's so much distraction, it's profanity seems to kind of cut through um, a lot of that noise and it, and it grabs people. And I, and I found that to be true on my, on my website for years. And so when it came to writing a book, um, I was also very deliberate about that, about, you know, it's, it's, I want to write a self-help book, but I want to make it very clear that this is not like any other self-help book people have come across in the airport or, or whatever. Uh, and so the, the style of the book does that, but also the title. Sure. 
Mark, uh, title aside, which we both have agreed is kind of hard to separate the title from the success of your book, it's obviously struck a chord. And I'm going to guess that uh, some large number of your followers and readers are of your same generation. I, I'm in my early 50s, soon to be 52. I'm going to guess you're in your early to mid-30s. I don't know, but I don't want to insult you. What, what would you teach the traditional leaders of the Fortune, you know, 5,000 companies or in beyond, beyond of which, of which I'm one, that are perhaps, you know, in the crescendo of their career. They're in their 50s and 60s. They're leading a legacy. They're coaching and nurturing and mentoring the largest wave of new demographics ever coming in history into the workforce, which are the millennials, Gen X, and Gen Y. What Speak to me, the 52-year-old you know, guy or, or, or lady who's running an organization. What is there for us to pay attention to that your generation is resonating so much, not with the title, but with the content of yeah. your book? I, th I think it's funny because I've, I've done a lot of talks to kind of older leadership groups, executives and stuff. And, and they always hit me with this question. And I, I think what's missed a lot between the generations is that the, the values and the metrics that previous generations took for granted, the millennials question, um, you know, the millennials grew up in much more cynical. We lived through 9-11 when we were kids. We live, we entered the job market in 2008. So it's like our profession, our career started at rock bottom, you know, so it's, we didn't buy into a, you know, necessarily wanting to have the corner office. We didn't buy into like, oh my God, I need to make six figures and buy a house. Um, we looked at the world and, and we adopt a lot of different values from what previous generations adopted. And so the things that matter to us uh, are not necessarily the, the, the traditional metrics of success that I think a lot of the older generations assume everybody has. You know, it's, it's the thing that might make a millennial employee happiest is not a raise, it might be something else. And, and so I, when, I, when I talk to, uh, when I talk about this with, with leaders, you know, they, they, they get frustrated, you know, they're like, millennials want to take so much vacation, they want to take time off. And it's like, well, well, yeah, you know, you're complaining because they're your employees. But if you think about it, that's actually a much healthier way to live is to not make the job the center of your universe. Um, and to take care of your health and take care, you know, make sure that you have a satisfying life. Uh, so it's, I think on the grand scheme of things, it's actually a healthy movement. It's just, it's a, there's a very frustrating miscommunication that happens between the generations. Mark, in our last couple of minutes here, uh, one of the concepts that I took away from your book, and I'm going to misquote it a little bit, but you basically said, you know, life is short. Most of us are average. Those who achieve greatness are obsessed with personal improvement, and that's kind of the outliers. The vast majority of us are kind of in the curve, in the middle, and everyone's trying to fix us. <laughs> and that there's some joy there. There's some peace of being in, the, in the, the middle, if you will. And that it's those of us in the middle that can maybe even spend our precious time on earth smelling the flowers and appreciating friendships and reading good books. I mean, that's a unique kind of point of view. I mean. Part of Franklin Covey's mission is sort of moving the curve righter and tighter and focusing on the middle 60% that are potential high performers but haven't seen the light yet. Uh, as a millennial, as an insanely successful author and blogger and writer and speaker and thought leader, um, 
tackle Franklin Covey's point of view on our obsession around needing to kind of, you know, tighten the curve, so to speak, and, you know, address the underperformers, those who have potential but haven't yet tasted it? I mean, the curve's always moving to the right, first of all. And second of all, even if you tighten the curve, the middle of the curve is always still going to be average. So like our, our perception, the hu our human perception of what average, averageness is, is relative. It's not absolute. So every, every decade, things do improve. Like if you look at, um, if you look at, you know, met metrics of the world, uh, you know, economic metrics and physical metrics, health metrics, everything, everything's always improving. People are always getting smarter. It doesn't feel that way, but people are always getting smarter. Um, things are always getting better, but it doesn't, the reason it doesn't feel that way is because our perception of what is average moves along with it. And um, so my, my, my argument to that, I mean, I, look, I, I agree, you know, human progress, like let, let's all work for human progress, right? Like let, let's all make things as good for many people as possible. That there's nothing wrong with that. My, my only counterpoint is simply that our understanding of what progress is, is relative. Right. You know, it's, it is, it's a moving target. Like our, our understanding of progress moves along as progress happens. And so in that sense, um, you can never escape this this feeling of mediocrity or averageness it's always going to exist with people um and so the the only thing you can do is is simply come to peace with it mark i'd read your books uh, a couple of books in the same genre uh in preparation for today's interview i discovered your blog i, I didn't even know you had a blog until I, I mean i knew you had a blog but i hadn't discovered it before you wrote an especially uh piercingly insightful one recently we're taping this interview in early April right now, right at the peak, if you would say, of the coronavirus in New York City where you are. And I don't know when you posted this blog, but it was especially um, uh, uh, noteworthy around you know, what you think is happening with the coronavirus and the number of weeks you and your family might be quarantined and such. We're going to air this interview probably in late April, early May, when we're not quite sure what will happen. But for the point of some context, tell us sort of what's happening with your life right now. What's it like to be quarantined in New York City? We're in Utah where everyone's quarantined, but it's, you know, different here than in Utah. What are you experiencing and how are you holding up? Uh, the big difference with New York City is that you can't really go outside. You know, we're, we all live in, in apartments here and, um, you know, there's not really much greenery. So the, the main thing we miss here is, is simply being able to, like, have a yard that you can go lay around in and, and enjoy the spring sunshine. Um, you know, it, it's the Corona thing has been very, I typically don't as a, as a, just a practice in my career. I don't, I try to avoid current events. I definitely avoid politics. Um, I try to focus on kind of universally uh, universal concepts and principles to help people. Uh, but when in, in late February, when I, some readers started emailing me about this and, and I, look, I, I started doing research on it and looking at the data, I, I felt a very strong responsibility to start writing about it and mm -hmm. writing very loudly. And I told my readers, I'm like, look, I never do this, but this is a big thing and you need to start getting ready to stay home. Like, you know, start buying food, buy supplies, right. get ready. Right. And that first week or two, I, I just got hundreds of emails telling me I was crazy, I was alarmist, I was panicking, I was scaring people. Um, 
but it's, you know, I guess maybe it's, it's, I felt like I was putting in the practice what I preached, which was save your Fs for the most important and urgent matters. And then once you do that, it, you, you will not be deterred by, you know, people disagreeing with you or getting upset with you or whatever. Um, Cause it's, it just felt so important that I'm like, you know what, if I look like an idiot for a month, I'm willing, it's worth doing that if I can help, you know, thousands of people prepare for this. So it was a very intense month professionally for me. Um, I think I'm kind of, I think I'm done writing about it now. I think it's kind of the words gotten out and everybody is on the same page, but now we just wait and try to stay healthy and uh, hopefully you know, I, I, I think this could last anywhere from three to six, three to eight months, three to six months. Um, but hopefully it's, it's on the shorter side. So. Well, I wanted to highlight that because I think you've done a great service to millions of people about your own sort of call to action around responsibility and taking this seriously. And this might be a place where you actually dedicate one of your precious Fs, right? To keep your family Thanks. safe and such. So I, I wanted to highlight, I think, a great service you did to the millions that follow your blog, and I would highly recommend people read your blogs in general. Your writing is uh, extraordinary, and you've paid the price to have a, a strong point of view on the topic you're passionate about. Mark, tell us what's next for you. You've been a prolific writer and blogger, speaker. Uh, I, I, you're on everybody's podcast, interview program. What does the future look like for you? What's next? Um, so I'm continuing the work on the site. So markmanson.net, if anybody wants to check it out, lots of articles there. Yeah. Um, and then the the big project I'm working on right now is I'm uh, I'm co-authoring Will Smith's uh, book with him. So he's gonna, we're actually just finishing that up this spring. So that will probably come out 2021 sometime. Well, that's kind of exciting. That was a, a subtle drop. Give us another sentence on that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Will's wanted. Will's never really said much about his life story, so he 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 wanted to write both. I'd say it's like fifty percent memoir, but also fifty percent kind of life lessons, things yeah. that he's learned in his career um, through his experiences. And so uh, his people approached me, and and I went out and met him about a year and a half ago, and and we just hit it off. Had a really good chemistry. Yeah. Um, and so I'm finishing up the draft now. A great success there. Will Smith has, and his family have a home here in Park City, so we see them around town occasionally. Look forward to having perhaps both of you back on Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. Mark Manson, safety to you and your family. Hope you stay healthy, and thanks for joining us today. Great conversation. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Mark Manson, 12 million copies sold, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week for another guest.